0: Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, your regular dive into the tales of true crime from the UK and Ireland that you may not be all that familiar with, some you may not even believe, but that are all true and that I bring to you each time around from my unbelievably messy spare room in North Wales. I am as ever Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, the hairy domino pixie, my true crime enthusiast cat, is here with me as always. And completing us are you folks, the wonderful enthusiasts that have gotten the show into its sixth year now. It is as fabulous as always having you joining me in the mug today, which I at least thank you kindly for doing so. And I do hope that as you have, then you join us for an episode that finds you and yours all good, all safe and all well. Now not too much preamble here then for the second part of the series opener and I shouldn't really need remind but if you haven't yet heard part one of Poacher, Petman, Predator then you're best off heading over there first and listening to that rather than cracking on here. Otherwise the episode will make as much sense as the appeal of Coldplay or Post Malone. If you have caught up with part one then just a slight recap. In part one, I brought you the account of 16-year-old Leanne Tiernan, a girl who disappeared whilst walking home from a shopping trip. One Sunday November afternoon in 2000 in Bramley, in the West Yorkshire city of Leeds, a mass hunt was instigated for Leanne, but sight nor sound of her was found until almost nine months later, when a dog walker discovered her body some 13 miles away in Lindley Woods, near Otley and the missing person's case turned into a murder inquiry. What police could not have foreseen is that everything that was required to point them in the direction of Leanne's killer, including the body dump site itself, was there on her body and how it had been left. Which I shall tell you about right now. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events including descriptions of a sexual nature involving children, and also references and descriptions of animal cruelty that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So please use discretion whilst you're listening in. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiasts for the concluding part of the Series 8 opener, Poacher, Petman, Predator. With the tragic discovery of the body of Leanne Tiernan, the hunt for a killer began in earnest, and police began by examining the collated evidence that they did have. The hairs and fibres recovered from Leanne's clothing, the pollen and wood fragments removed from her hair, the duvet, the bin liners, the twine used to secure them, the different coloured cable ties, and the dog collar. They also made a public appeal for people linked to the Bramley area and Lindley Woods, for experience told them that this was an area that Leanne's killer had familiarity with. It was surely no coincidence that she was left there, when there were ample other places in the 13 miles between there and Bramley to dispose of a body. And over the coming weeks as the investigation progressed, made appeals concerning the items of evidence that I listed before. The duvet cover though it was appealed by West Yorkshire police had no takers as I said it was at least 20 years old made of a mix of cotton and polyester and faded through years of wear and washing and although pictures of it were released to the media no one could identify it. Equally the refuse bags Leanne had been wrapped in were found to be a generic brand though were found to be sold almost exclusively by the Morrison supermarket chain, of which there were two within Bramley. So, whilst both of these were vague enough that you'd think they would go nowhere, you could think the same with the cable ties. However, whilst the black and clear ties that had been used to bind Leanne's hands were widely available in any DIY store, the yellow cable ties that had been used on Leanne Had a unique manufacturer model number and were found to have been manufactured by an Italian company who supplied 99% of their product to the Royal Mail and a subsidiary of it, Parcel Force, who used them almost exclusively. Make a note. The twine that had been used to bind the refuse sacks containing Leanne's body was also quite unique, for it was of an unusual composition having four intertwined strands instead of the usual three. Know your twine. It was traced to a manufacturer in Devon, and having originally been made for use solely by the Ministry of Defence, the company had more recently made a one-off batch of this twine, manufactured specially for rabbit netting. So, details such as this do help to narrow a suspect pool somewhat and it was narrowed even further by an examination of the hairs, fibres, and pollen found on Leanne. The dog hairs found within the duvet cover and on Leanne's clothing led to a British first. Identified as being black and tan coloured, a forensic sciences service scientist flew out with a sample of them to a university in the United States in Texas, who had developed a process of DNA profiling dogs. Principally for pedigree research. Sure enough, a partial DNA profile of a dog was obtained from these hairs, and, should a suspect arise in Leanne's murder, who had a black and tan coloured dog, the dog could be identified the first time a dog's DNA profile was obtained in a British case. The fibres also recovered from Leanne's jumper were found after examination to be red nylon carpet fibres and were again found to be unique due to the unusual distinctive way in which the red fibres had been lobed and twisted and dyed in a specific way. They were redder and twisted at one end. So unique were they that carpet manufacturers called in could identify the exact carpet type from them. Now investigators knew Leanne had been kept frozen somewhere for months, but her body, her hair, her skin and her nasal cavities revealed that she'd been kept somewhere else at least for a short time and aside from the site in Lindley Woods where the body was dumped. Distinct pollen spores were found upon Leanne and after calling in an expert Professor Patricia Wiltshire an ecologist botanist and palynologist when she examined the duvet cover Leanne had been dumped in as well as Leanne's body itself in Harrogate Mortuary Professor Wiltshire was able to isolate pollen spores of plum or damson, poplar, privet, and conifer plants, as well as traces of ash, most likely from a bonfire. It was likely that if they could identify a suspect, then this specific combination of pollen, for they were all from plant life found in a common garden, could be used to identify the garden of where Leanne had lain for a period and confirm whether or not. It was his. So it's all good having these as criteria to tick off against the suspect. for they're quite conclusive. And if you can find someone who you can tie all of these to. Boom. But you've got to find that suspect first haven't you? Now police did have a suspect pool. Once Leanne's body had been discovered. More than 200 DNA samples were collected from her family members and friends as it was important to rule out those close to Leanne so they could focus on finding a killer but also from known sex offenders from the area as they hoped that they might find a match. Human hair had been found in the knot of the scarf found around Leanne's neck that did not match hers and though conventional DNA testing on the hair roots failed using mitochondrial DNA testing a profile was obtained from the minute amounts of DNA inside the hair shaft, although frustratingly, no match for it was found on the National DNA Database. But again, find a suspect and you could now DNA him and his dog, should he have one. A sizable list of names of people had also been given by members of the public following the appeal for anyone with a connection to Lindley Woods, so it wasn't like police were plucking names out of thin air. They had a great deal to work through and eliminate. And then, one Friday afternoon, weeks into Operation Conifer, they got the breakthrough they needed from the dog collar. The 8-inch light tan leather dog collar found on Leanne's body was a good quality, recently manufactured and clearly unused one. That was found to have been made by a company in Nottingham named Armitage Pet Products. It had only recently been bought as the type of manufacture of it was found to have been done by computer assisted stitching, a process the company had only brought in within the previous two years. However, Armitage produced these collars in bulk and distributed them all over the UK to wholesalers nationwide who then distributed these to almost 130 companies nationwide for this subsequent distribution, either as individual online sales or in bulk to independent pet stores. An officer from Operation Conifer, Detective Constable David Wilson, was then tasked to trawl through a list of the companies supplied by Armitage to see if any of them kept records of any individual purchases. Now... This sounds a right shit task, doesn't it? And it must have felt like trying to plat's knot. But these things have to be done. Every possible avenue has to be explored. Detective Constable Wilson tried company after company, contacting the large amount of wholesalers to try and determine if any of them had sold the dog collar to someone in the Leeds area. Only to be told time and time again, "Nope, sorry, we just send them to such and such. Once they're gone from here." That's the end of our interest. But company number 112 on the list, a Liverpool-based wholesale and mail-order company called Pets Pajamas, suddenly made the whole task worthwhile, for it provided what was to be the crucial breakthrough in Operation Conifer. Whereas most of these companies didn't keep a list of individual sales, Pets Pajamas did and they told Detective Constable Wilson that there had been three sales in the Yorkshire area who had bought such collars, and sent him a list. One of these customers in the Yorkshire area was in Leeds, and who had bought six of these collars, two silver dog bowls, and a dog lead from them in May 2000, paid for by credit card, which had then been sent to an address in Bramley, number 17 Cockshot Drive though one that was just outside the parameters of the search area from the previous year. The customer's name was John Taylor. Now, your spidey sense would be going mental here, wouldn't it? And it was heightened like you wouldn't believe because the name John Taylor had already come up in the investigation, suggested by two separate people as someone having a connection to Lindley Woods. The first of these was a man named Michael Hardin, who had known Taylor for many years ever since he was in the Boys Brigade in the 1970s, which Taylor was an officer in. The two had camped often in Linley Woods whilst in this, and had retained a friendship following both leaving, often going poaching together in the very same woods. The second was a former girlfriend of Taylor named Deborah Benjamin who had lived with him for a short while after answering a Lonely Hearts advert Taylor had placed in a local newspaper, and who told police that she'd visited Lindley Woods with him quite often, being into the same pastimes of fishing and coursing as Taylor was. However, and this is where police thought, we've hit the jackpot here, Deborah had ended their relationship the previous year because of Taylor's extreme bondage fetish and also because she felt that during sex with him, she was being raped, in her own words. She told police that Taylor would increasingly use cable ties to restrain her during sex, of which he kept a large bundle in a bedside drawer. And when they asked her how Taylor would tie her up, she detailed how he would employ the method of tying a plastic cable tie around each of her wrists, then tied her hands behind her back with a third cable. Interlinking them together, the exact same method that had been used on Liantun. So it's time to look into John Taylor then. And when police did, he ticked another couple of the boxes as well. He had dogs. At one point, he'd been a dog breeder, and guess where he worked? Parcel force. On the sixteenth of October two thousand and one. John Taylor was arrested at his home on suspicion of the abduction and murder of Leanne Turner and was taken to Milgarth Police Station for questioning. During the interview, the scruffily dressed Taylor sat in a largely unbuttoned royal blue shirt, initially denied all knowledge of the crime, claiming that even though it was less than a mile from his house, he'd not been to the Huffley Gill area in years. An extract from his police interview where he claims this is as follows. Huffley Recently, virtually never. I'd not been up there for a long time. I'd been up once earlier in the week because I'd walked around the same way uh, but, when but, I was looking for my dogs. That yeah. was, I don't know, perhaps a week or more before. Okay. How, many, how many times have you been to Huffley Gil since since Leontine and Never. Uh, was abducted no no not at all you haven't been been backwards however with his house being searched and with more and more overwhelming evidence put towards him the fibers the human hair that dna had been obtained from from the scarf the cable ties the sighting of an individual hanging around huffley gill his name being given as having a connection to lindley woods and the slam dunk dog collar. Taylor eventually admitted that he had abducted Leanne, planning to rape her, but she had died accidentally. The story that Taylor came out with, with no remorse or compassion, was that he'd been walking his dog on Huffley Gill that November Sunday afternoon the previous year, when Leanne had brushed past him, and he, in his own words, grabbed her spur of the moment placing his scarf over her face and his parcel force coat with a hood tied up, forcing her not to scream once again. He claimed he had tied her wrists behind her back with his dog lead and then unbelievably walked her back the half mile to his home, a journey that took 22 minutes. Once back at his, Taylor claimed he had screamed at Leanne has how to shut off her ringing phone which the terrified girl had told him, which explained why it had cut off when Sharon had tried contacting Leanne, and then he'd taken off Leanne's coat and bound her with cable ties and blindfolded her. She was then taken upstairs to his bedroom, where he prepared to rape her, and as he'd been cutting up a pair of trousers to make a hood, the blindfold had slipped from Leanne. As he'd lunged at her to replace it, they'd struggled, and she had kicked out at him. He even said, You can't blame the poor lass. During this struggle, Leanne had fallen off the bed and struck her head fatally. Taylor claimed there was blood everywhere. However, he could not explain satisfactorily why Leanne had a cable tie and a scarf around her neck, merely claiming that he'd believed she was dead from the head wound, and he had lifted her from the floor Using the scarf that was around her neck, and that must have been when she'd been strangled and actually died. He claimed he'd left her corpse alone until the next day, and had then wrapped up Leanne's body the morning after she'd died, before burying her. But the results of the post mortem examination on Leanne's body had already concluded that the degree of decomposition was inconsistent with burial in the ground for many months as Taylor had suggested, and so they pressed him on the matter until Taylor finally admitted that he hadn't actually dumped her body straight away. For a while, he'd kept Leanne's body buried under wooden pallets in his back garden, before he moved her body and stored it inside his couch, Taylor claimed. But it haunted me at home. Every time I came downstairs, I felt she was there. Words fail, don't they? They just fail. Monster. Regardless, he kept Leanne's body for nearly nine months with it haunting him before he unceremoniously dumped her 13 miles from home. When asked by police why he'd done it, Taylor said, I have no idea. Later that day, Police fixed up seven feet high wooden screens around Taylor's mid-terraced house on Cockshot Drive, also sealing off a field behind the row of ex-prisoner officer houses in the cul-de-sac. Over the next ten days, more than a dozen officers stripped the three-bedroom house in its garden, taking away household items such as a sink and a chest freezer, and even the bedroom floorboards and tons of soil. Detectives at one point even used a fire service cherry picker to search the chimney and take photographs of the garden. One unnamed neighbour told the BBC News It's like they're taking the place apart. Now it was worth them taking the house and garden apart though. Extracts from a police video taken that documents Taylor's home ahead of the search proceedings have been shared through various documentaries that have aired. And consistently, the house is reported as being squalid. The extracts show a run-down property, its front door blocked by what appears to be a pallet to keep dogs in, leading into a grimy-looking kitchen strewn with bits of junk, including a toilet and a church pew in the kitchen, underneath a series of rosettes tailored one for dog or bird breeding, who knows what. The extract also shows that, crucially, A newspaper lies on the kitchen unit, one bearing a headline concerning the hunt for Leanne Terman's killer. As a forensic search team examined the house, what they found can only be equated to ticking off a dream bingo card of evidence. There were no carpets throughout the house. It transpired that Taylor had sometime previously ripped them all up and had burned them and burnt remnants of red carpet were found in the back garden. But the nails that had held the carpet down had been left intact, and these had many red fibres still attached to them, of the same composition completely, down to the unique dye pattern as those removed from Leanne's clothing. Another loose nail, this one attached to the kitchen door frame, held a piece of an identical refuse bag to those used to wrap Lian. As though something had caught on it while passing and a roll of identical twine the unique four-ply weave composition was also found in the house two eight inch light tan leather dog collars were also removed from the property identical to that around Leanne's neck and part of the order from the previous bay whilst in the back garden of the property and the police video shows a ramshackle back garden Strewn with piles of wood and refuse, there were the remains of dog kennels there, had ferrets, a skip, everything. But attached to the fence was a broken yellow cable tie, exactly the same manufacturer model and item code as that used to bind Leanne's wrist. Focusing on the garden, Professor Wiltshire visited the scene, and sure enough, to the left hand side of the neglected garden was a plum tree a privet hedge, and the remains of two bonfires. Taylor's garden was an exact match, enough for Professor Wiltshire to state firmly that in her scientific opinion, this was the garden that Leanne's body had lain in for a period of time after her death. The garden was to give up one final piece of evidence also, the final missing piece of the puzzle. When investigators dug up the garden and removed the soil for analysis they discovered a virtual animal graveyard for the back garden contained the skeletons of 28 ferrets and the skeletons of four dogs one of which had a crushed skull. And then it twigged why. Thinking back to when Leanne had gone missing almost a year previously part of the police appeal at the time had been to trace a man seen hanging around Huffley Gill Walking his dog, a black and tan terrier dog, and an efit of this man had been published to the media. Following his arrest, the witness who'd seen this man, who had helped comprise this efit, was taken to an identity parade and picked John Taylor out of it unhesitatingly. Now, no such dog belonged to John Taylor at the time of his arrest. At the time, that is detective chief superintendent greg explained later the dog that he was walking that day was a terrier dog which we found in the back garden along with three other dogs buried that terrier dog had its head stoved in with a meat cleaver because we had put an appeal in the paper with a photo fit of that man asking if anyone knew him so to cover his tracks he got rid of the dog this is the type of predator we're talking about with taylor no regard for life whatsoever oh and if this all wasn't a slam dunk enough guess whose dna profile matched that of the hair found on the scarf to a one in a billion match course on wednesday the 17th of october 2001 john taylor was charged with the abduction and murder of leanne and appeared before Leeds Magistrates, where he was remanded in custody. By the time he next appeared for a plea hearing on Friday the 15th of February 2002, before Mr Justice Poole, he admitted abducting Leanne, but was not asked to plea to the charge of murder. So, John Taylor then. Born in Leeds on the 27th of August 1956, the eldest son of three children of Margaret and Frank Taylor, from a young age Taylor developed a fascination with the outdoors and was introduced to poaching by an unnamed adult at a young age, being encouraged to display cruelty to animals. By age nine he had joined the Army United Reformed Church Division of the Boys Brigade, and it was here that he first came to know Lindley Woods, often camping there both with the brigade and with friends. Academically a non-starter, he'd left school in 1971 at age 15 with no qualifications and worked periodically in a series of low-skilled jobs, never staying at one for a long period. It was at this age that Taylor collected his only criminal conviction before he was arrested for abduction and murder, 30 years later, when he was fined for the theft of a suit. At age 18, he rejoined the boys' brigade as an officer, now leading the outdoor trips he'd once been a part of, but was remembered less here for his leadership skills and outdoor survival competence, and more for the horrific cruelty that he displayed towards animals. The same person who years later would call police and give Taylor's name, Michael Hardin, recalled one particular vicious incident when Taylor had brutally stabbed a fox to death after stoving its head in, though this didn't put Hardin off going poaching with Taylor for many years afterwards. This extreme cruelty to animals, and it's quite perverse when Taylor later set himself up as a dog breeder and who seemed obsessed with his pets. This continued throughout his life. There are stories of Taylor brutally clubbing pheasants to death that he'd hunted for pleasure, of torturing and killing rabbits that he'd snared, and even one occasion Hardin recalls that whilst driving through Paley Bridge after a poaching trip, Taylor had deliberately driven into a sheep, then had taken it home in the car, and had skinned and gutted it in the bath. Now, I wouldn't want to be anywhere near such an individual but they say love is blind and in the mid-1970s Taylor had begun a relationship with a woman named Janet, a nursery school teacher who was his opposite number and ran the chapter of the girls brigade at the same church. The couple married in 1977, had a son in 1980 and a daughter followed in 1982 and in May of that year the family moved to the terraced house in Cockshot Drive, where he was later to murder Leanne. However, by this time the marriage was in trouble, for it was Taylor's obsession with animals that contributed to the breakdown of his marriage. Taylor set himself up as a dog breeder, but neglected to house train the dogs he bred, and so the house became filthy and stank, leading to his house-proud wife soon becoming sickened by the sight of her husband, and his scores of animals. By nineteen eighty four, Taylor had added to this collection and bought two owls, to which he would feed day old chicks that he would buy in bulk bags of two thousand at a time, and that he would keep in the large chest freezer he bought, similar to one detectives believed had been used to store Leanne in after her murder. It was the final straw for his wife, who left him following this and took the children with her though the couple remained only separated and still married until finally divorcing in 1994. By the late 1990s, John Taylor was known in the Bramley area as the Pet Man, known to do a steady trade selling pet food from his home and periodically from a market stall also, and remembered for always having something to show the children and a whole wealth of amusing animal anecdotes. He did this around working for parcel force and would often deliver far across the country needing a surplus wage to keep up with the cost of the menagerie he had for his home by that time was like some sort of bloody bizarre mini zoo. By 1996 Taylor owned two Alsatian puppies seven border terriers, lurchers and jack russells 28 ferrets, a polecat, 40 chickens and a duck. You can imagine the smell there already, I'm sure. Now these animals, which he teased and tortured for his own amusement, were left in the house, which was never cleaned, generally neglected, whilst Taylor went off and did his own favoured pastime, his social life non-existent by then, poaching. Reportedly, it was his passion and his main food source, and what he brought home to eat from nearby woodland He would have killed in the most horrific of ways. But this cruelty wasn't reserved solely for wild animals. Taylor had no such compassion with the animals he kept as pets and obsessed over either. When one of his Alsatian puppies attacked the duck one day, he shot the puppy and then, in a fit of rage, he went on to shoot all forty chickens and hung them up in the kitchen with bags over their heads to be eaten later. He sounds delightful already, doesn't he? It was around this time that Taylor began to advertise for female partners in contact magazines and newspaper adverts. The advert reading, Single white male, late 40s male, hard worker, looking for single white woman in Leeds area who enjoys long walks and animals. A later analysis of Taylor's phone records showed that he had made literally hundreds of telephone calls to Datelines and in response to these adverts, and had travelled extensively nationwide to meet women who responded. He met at least 25 such women that police could retrieve contact details for, and had sexual relationships with some of these, though not all, for despite his proclivity and his willingness to travel he seemed to have difficulty in holding together long-term relationships. Perhaps they were put off by Taylor's often unwashed and generally unkempt appearance. Or perhaps it was something else about him that unnerved them. Something that the account of Deborah Benjamin can best sum up, for she knew only too well. Then 34-year-old Deborah had answered Taylor's classified advert in early 2000 soon being charmed by the man who shared the same pursuits and interests as she did. And within weeks of meeting him, she and her teenage children had moved into Taylor's home, which she proceeded to clean from top to bottom for the first time in who knows how long. And at first, things were fine. But then Taylor began to change towards her, becoming abusive. He began to control how she dressed, wanting her to dress up more femininely for him. Which she was uncomfortable with. It wasn't her, she claimed. Sexually, though the bondage, blindfolding, and gagging were at first consensual, he soon began restraining her with cable ties in the unique pattern restraint we've become all too familiar with. Also clamping one tightly around each of her breasts, tying her spread eagle to the four corners of his bed, and whipping her breasts and inner thighs with a thin branch. As though he wanted to cause her maximum distress. Deborah began to feel this was too sadistic for her. It felt like rape, she was later to tell police. And when he began stocking the bedroom with more whips and things like nipple clamps, and of course, the bedside drawer always full of cable ties, and he told of how thrilled he would be to lock a woman in a cupboard, Deborah wisely called time on the relationship and she and her children moved out. That was in the autumn of 2000, and it was shortly afterwards that Taylor began to stalk women around Huffley Gill, sometimes hanging about there for up to three hours at a time, when one Sunday afternoon, Leanne Tjernan was in the wrong place at the wrong time. In 2001, Taylor then began a new relationship with another woman from a Lonely Hearts column, but this went the same way as the previous one. No doubt, excited and aroused by what he'd done to Leanne, Taylor was soon touching his partner's 15-year-old daughter inappropriately, and when this relationship ended because of this, he began a series of obscene phone calls to his former partner and her daughter, threatening to bind and whip the 15-year-old. Now there's no record of this being reported to police at all and it's unclear as to whether Taylor met up with any other responders to his adverts throughout the rest of the year. He was certainly single when police came knocking on his door on Tuesday the 16th of October 2001 though and arrested him on suspicion of abduction and murder. Now though he'd admitted abducting Leanne He denied murdering her right up until the day his trial began at Leeds Crown Court on Monday the 8th of July 2002 where that day he then changed his plea and admitted the 16-year-old's murder. Represented by defence lawyer Graham Stowe Bateson Casey, Taylor sat in the dock wearing a blue sweatshirt over a white shirt, showed little emotion as he first confirmed his name and then answered, guilty as the clerk put the murder charge to him. Of course, a guilty plea meant that he was never forced to stand in the dock and explain Leanne's final moments. Robert Smith, KC, prosecuting, told the court how Taylor abducted Leanne, saying, At that place, Huffley Gill, he confronted Leanne Tiernan, stifled her after she'd admitted one scream, and compelled her to go to his home there he bound her hands behind her back and there's evidence that he also may have engaged in some sexual activity with Leanne before he deliberately strangled her using ligatures he added that there was evidence Taylor took extreme sexual pleasure from tying up women in this way as several former girlfriends had provided crucial evidence about Taylor describing him as an oddball who was keen on bondage and sadomasochism. One woman, referred to as Miss B, said she was often tied up by Taylor and said he had wanted to photograph her tied up with his industrial products, twine and self-locking cable ties, telling her he liked tying women up and locking them in a cupboard. Whilst another woman, known to the court only as Mrs E, said that Taylor had described how he wanted to tie up her 15-year-old daughter and have sex with her in February 2001, three months after Leanne's death. Mr Smith claimed Taylor was either entirely unremorseful or driven by his sexual urges to repeat the scene in which Leanne had died, before continuing. His conduct towards Leanne Tiernan bore distinct similarities with sexual activity he had engaged in and expressed interest in with female companions. Given the condition of Leanne Tiernan's body when examined, it is impossible to say whether or not she'd actually been sexually interfered with, but the motive for killing her was for the purpose of sexual gratification. The prosecution has come to this conclusion given the absence of any realistic alternative. Having strangled her within his own home, John Taylor then kept her body at his home for a period of at least three weeks and on one view of the evidence, for nine months. It is possible that her body may have been refrigerated, or even frozen, for some considerable period of time. The court had also heard the testimony of several scientists, who had all agreed with the results of the post-mortem examination on Leanne's body, which had concluded that the degree of decomposition was inconsistent with burial in the ground for many months, as Taylor had suggested and one, a refrigeration expert, had testified that samples of Leanne's cardiac tissue was indeed consistent with refrigeration. Sentencing Taylor, presiding Mr Justice Astill dismissed his version of events he'd given to police about how the teenager had fallen off his bed, banged her head and died when he lifted her with a scarf which was round her neck, believing she was already dead, And then panicking and leaving her body in Lindley Woods. He claimed this was an attempt by Taylor to reduce the full degree of your guilt. The judge then told Taylor After the death of this girl at your hands, you wanted sexual deviancy with a girl of a similar age. That not only demonstrates how dangerous you are, but demonstrates your lack of remorse. Not by chance were you in this area for this purpose. This was a planned, premeditated encounter you were not acting on impulse you chose a secluded place and a vulnerable young girl who suited your purposes this was as cold and calculating as can be imagined you are a dangerous sexual sadist your purpose in kidnapping this young girl whether you can recognize it or not was so that you could satisfy your perverted cravings the suffering that you caused her and the suffering that you continue to cause those who loved her simply cannot be measured. And it will be reflected, as with all the facts of this appalling crime, in the recommendation that I make for the period you are to serve. You must expect to spend the rest of your life in custody. Taylor stared straight ahead as the judge spoke, and simply nodded in response. There were cheers and applause in the public gallery which was packed with Leanne's family and friends when the judge announced his recommendation that Taylor must expect to spend the rest of his life in custody. He was then given two life sentences one for kidnap and the other for murder with Judge Astill recommending that Taylor serve a minimum of 25 years before ever being considered for parole. Following sentencing Detective Superintendent Greg commented Taylor appears to have been an ordinary man but he's not he has a dangerous, extremely dangerous nature this is displayed in the way in which he treated animals throughout his life he is a callous, cold, cunning individual who thought he'd got away with it but he made many mistakes he kept Leanne in a freezer in his kitchen for 9 months why did he take her out when he did? and dispose of her body miles away when he did. The simple explanation, we feel, is that his freezer broke down. People who used to go into that house told us he had an upright freezer that suddenly disappeared. We will never know, because he has never confessed to that part. That sums this guy up. He is dangerous. He should never be released from prison. He added... We do not believe this is the first major crime he has committed. We feel that the way this murder was pre-planned and the way he hid and disposed of the body was calculated. We cannot exclude the possibility he has killed before. He knows what he's done. I think I know what he's done. Hopefully, the evidence will be found. He will never confess to anything unless his back is against the wall and he has got the overwhelming evidence facing him. Leanne's mother Sharon, flanked by her daughter Michelle and her ex-husband Michael, said following Taylor's sentencing We all loved Leanne very much and miss her terribly. More than 18 months has passed since she went missing, and I don't know how we've managed to get through it. Although John Taylor has been locked up, our agony continues. We feel nothing from him. We're pleased that he's been locked up so he can't do this to anyone else. But life should mean life. Mr. Tiernan fought back tears as he thanked Detective Superintendent Greg and the investigation team for their work, he added. Just knowing that he is never going to be coming out to do this to anybody else should make everybody feel a lot easier. Now Taylor was sent to the maximum security Wakefield Prison, Monster Mansion itself, where reportedly... He rapidly became part of a card school that played on landing three of the wing each evening before lockup, and which also included Harold Shipman and a couple of other individuals we shall meet at a future point on the show. Taylor was in fact one of the inmates to name prison officers Delwyn Marshall and Spencer Shoemaker at the inquest of Shipman where he accused them of offering to supply Shipman with rope to hang himself. But now that Taylor was in custody and feeling this was an individual who had committed further serious offences because no one starts offending in this way aged 45, police were wondering, what else has this monster done? To this extent, West Yorkshire Police had also issued a photograph of a silver clasp necklace found in the boot of Taylor's car, a blue G-Reg Ford Cortina, in an attempt to identify its owner. Detective Superintendent Greg said we know the necklace was not Leanne's we would like to trace its owner we've tried to build up a picture of Taylor's movements and associates we're still concerned that there may be other victims and families who have been affected by the actions of Taylor our inquiries are ongoing and we're still trying to piece together as much information as we can about him We know in the 1990s he was mainly self-employed in the sale of pet products on markets and through dog breeding businesses. He may have travelled widely. Taylor made hundreds of contacts through lonely heart columns. Many people will not have realised who this man was. Having Taylor's DNA profile on file, police began a trawl through other historical cold cases, working outwards from the Bramley area and two sexual attacks jumped out at them immediately. Both had taken place in the Bramley area more than 12 years before, and one of them even on Huffley Gill. In the first of these, on the 18th of October 1988, a then 31-year-old woman, we shall call her Anne, was approached by a masked man as she walked through Huffley Gill, the same footpath from where Leanne was abducted, on her way to collect her 10-year-old daughter from school. He grabbed her around the neck and at knife point took her to a secluded area where he forced her to take his penis in her mouth before ordering her to lie down and raping her. Afterwards, the rapist asked the woman, Do you know how I can get the number 44 to the city centre? Fourteen and a half years later, prosecuting counsel Tom Bayliss KC told the court that that question had been an attempt to disguise the fact that he really only lived a quarter of a mile away. Speaking in 2003, Anne, by then in her mid-40s, had moved away from the area where she lived at the time of the attack. She told her how her marriage had broken up just weeks after she was raped, how she suffered severe mood swings and was depressed, and how she would never say that she's been raped explaining it's easier to say i've been attacked and i never went for counseling i had three children and i just had to get on with life at least having the kids around was a help a comfort although they were too young to ever discuss it with after she was attacked she told how she was afraid of leaving the house in case her attacker was watching her saying i still don't go out alone when i go on the bus with my daughter and any men sit behind me i have to move If a man is walking behind me or a jogger comes up behind me, I get panicky because he's grabbed me from behind. After it happened, I had nightmares and could see him in my sleep. He's still there all the time. The second rape that had jumped out at police occurred at lunchtime on March 1st, 1989, when a then 21-year-old newlywed mother, we shall call her Marie, although that isn't her real name, was at home in Bramley with a child when an intruder masked in a terrifying hood, armed with a knife, entered her house. With her baby in another room at the time, he made her go to her bedroom where he undressed her, he blindfolded her and gagged her, forced her to commit an act of oral sex upon him, he then raped her vaginally and tried to commit buggery upon her before fleeing. Though a mass appeal was made, her rapist was never caught. Speaking 14 years later, Marie told how she still suffers from the after-effects of the rape, which she believed led to the collapse of her first marriage, because her husband found it impossible to cope with what had happened to her. She said it was two years before she could use the word rape to describe what had happened to her, explaining, I would say I was attacked, that was because his mannerisms were gentle, not brutal. What I mean is that he didn't kick or physically hurt me, so I didn't see it as rape, even though he was armed with a knife. It was mental torture, not physical torture. Two years after being raped, she received £14,500 from the Criminal Injuries Compensation Board, but told how she spent the money in six months on presents for people and trips away because it seemed like dirty money to her. With its terrible reminders. She did not seek any professional counselling for 10 years, but then went to a GP, recalling, I felt I could cope on my own. I didn't want to speak about it to a complete stranger who hadn't been there and had no idea about how I was feeling. I thought that by not talking to anyone, I could get over it a bit quicker. But I didn't. I even went through a period of blaming myself for what happened. I would ask myself if I'd done something and this was God's way of punishing me for things I'd done when I was young. Even silly little things like writing graffiti on a wall. But then I went to my GP and it all flooded out. I was crying and I don't think he knew what had hit him or how to deal with it. She further recalled that the hardest time for her was when her attacker was at large and not knowing who he was, saying... Because he wore a mask and I couldn't see his face, I couldn't identify him. Even listening to television reports of other attacks on women made me wonder whether it could be the same man. Moving away from the area did help, but even now, if I'm alone in the house, I have to have all the doors locked. At night, I have to have the curtains drawn, and I can't stand people looking at me, even in the street. If I see people, men, staring at me, I think they're staring at me sexually. The memories are always there, but when the police came to say they'd arrested the rapist, I was sick to the stomach because of where he lived. He came from Bramley, where I lived at the time. DNA from the rapist in both of these cases had been recovered and preserved, and in October 2002, the individual responsible matched conclusively was rearrested at Wakefield Prison and was charged with each offence. John Taylor Taylor's initial refusal to cooperate with the rape inquiry changed as he was presented with more and more damning evidence. And by the time his trial came round at Leeds Crown Court on the 4th of February 2003, his defence counsel, Richard Reed Casey, told the court that he now admitted the two attacks and pleaded guilty to the two rapes before the Honourable Norman Jones Casey, the recorder of Leeds. Sentencing Taylor to concurrent life sentences without the possibility of parole for a minimum of 30 years, a sentence to be reduced by 8 months and 26 days, which Taylor had already spent in prison, Judge Norman Jones told the court a psychiatric report showed that Taylor was a sexual psychopath who was unable to control his urges towards women. The judge told Taylor, It is said you have shown remorse. It may mean well, but the reality of these cases is that if you are on the street, you pose a danger to any woman who passes nearby. I don't believe John Taylor knows the meaning of remorse myself. The first victim, Anne, who had been in court to see Taylor sentenced, said later, When I was told by the police that the man who attacked me was John Taylor, I was horrified. It was bad enough that he lived just a stone's throw away from where I lived at the time. But I've learned since that he used to go into the same shop as me, and even the same pub. Then, when he was in court for attacking me and the other lady, it all came flooding back, particularly when I saw the artist's impression of the man who attacked me. I saw Leanne Tiernan's mum on the television the other night though, and I thought, at least I'm alive. Her poor daughter is dead. Marie, meanwhile, had been unable to and said she regretted not going to see Taylor sentenced at court, explaining, I just wish I'd gone to court to see him in the flesh as a human being, if that is what you can call him. That would have been my way of coping, getting my own back, knowing that I had power over him instead of him having power over me. For me, the nightmare will never go and how would something like that ever i ask you how would it now taylor's minimum sentence had been buggered about with the powers that be do this sometimes don't they and on review it had been set at a minimum of 20 years before he could seek parole by lord Wolfe, the former lord chief justice of england and wales because Taylor was not considered one of the prisoners who'd been given a whole life tariff. Before November 2002, decisions of when or if a life sentence prisoner could be considered for parole had been the responsibility of the Home Secretary of the time, but when this was later challenged by a convicted murderer, judges became allowed to have full responsibility in these decisions with the implementation of the Criminal Justice Act 2003. Thus, taylor became an existing prisoner within the meaning of schedule 22 of the act and a high court review of taylor's sentence was necessary on the 19th of december 2006 case number 2004 324 mts came before our favorite judge here on the show who we've met several times before even covered his dad's murder mr justice peter openshaw at the Royal Courts of Justice in London. Now, Mr. Justice Openshaw's remarks in full can be found in a link within the episode show notes, so I won't repeat them fully here. But he ruled This was a planned and sadistic murder of a child aggravated by the element of abduction and sexual assault. The victim must have suffered terribly. He then hid the body, first in the freezer and then in the woods. Even in cases of this gravity, I am required to consider whether credit should be given for a plea of guilty. But some of the little credit available was lost by his persistence in denying some elements of the offence. A Newton hearing was ordered, but the defendant withdrew his basis of plea on the day of hearing. These circumstances would now attract the whole life tariff, even on a plea. I have read the representations made on his behalf by Graham Stoke Bateson. In my judgment, There was no mitigation whatsoever either in the facts of the offence or in his personal circumstances. It is true that he has made some progress in prison, but set against the magnitude of his offending, this frankly counts for nothing. I note that the family of the victim have said that they intend to submit victim personal statements, but they have not in fact done so. Their anguish does not need to be spelt out, for it is obvious to all. Following his arrest for murder and now having his DNA, the police embarked upon a painstaking review of of the unsolved sexual attacks by strangers upon women in the locality. By this means, the defendant's guilt was proved of two other terrible rapes committed respectively in 1988 and 1989. In due course, the defendant pleaded guilty to these rapes before His Honourable Judge Norman Jones Casey, the recorder of Leeds, who sentenced the defendant to life imprisonment and expressly disapplied the early release provisions. This is, in effect, amounted to a whole life sentence. This is surely one of these most serious cases where the Secretary of State would have gone as high as 30 years, even on a plea. Accordingly, I set the minimum term at 30 years. I order, as I am required to do, that the term of 30 years is reduced by the period of 8 months and 26 days, which he spent in custody before being sentenced. I am anxious that this sentence is not misunderstood or misreported. The sentence is and remains a sentence of imprisonment for life. The defendant may not even be considered for release for this offence of murder until he has served at least 30 years. That is not to say he will then be released, for the whole life term imposed for the rapes, remains in force. Furthermore, the defendant will be detained unless and until the parole board is satisfied that he no longer presents a risk to the public. Many prisoners, and surely John Taylor is likely to be one, are in fact detained for many years after their tariff has expired. Indeed, it may be that he presents such a risk that he could never safely be released but that is for others to decide in due course. I am just anxious that no one thinks that I am suggesting that he be released in 30 years, for I most certainly am not. Boom, we love Judge Openshaw, don't we? Skip forward now to June 2018, bearing in mind that police had, over all of this time, been looking at other potential offences that Taylor was responsible for, And on June the 6th of that year, Taylor appeared via video link at a hearing at Leeds Crown Court to plead guilty to one of a number of other fresh charges that he faced, a further count of rape and having an offensive weapon. On the 8th of October, he appeared once again, again via video link from Wakefield Prison, pleading guilty to 16 offences, including two counts of rape, two other serious sexual offences, Two of possessing an offensive weapon, four of indecent assault, kidnapping, assault occasional in actual bodily harm and unlawful wounding, speaking only to confirm his name and enter plea to the charges as they were put to him by the court clerk. The offences related to attacks on five female victims in the Leeds area between december nineteen seventy seven and august nineteen ninety six, and prosecutor Stephen Wood Casey immediately asked for the case to be adjourned so victim statements could be obtained ahead of sentencing adding that it may be that some of the victims wished to attend court to see taylor sentenced and so the recorder of leeds judge guy kearl kc duly adjourned the case until friday october the 26th that day taylor appeared by video link at leeds crown court from wakefield prison Wearing a grey open neck shirt and sporting grey hair, as Stephen Wood relayed to the court the list of offences he had pleaded guilty to. The first victim in the latest court case involving Taylor took place in Armley on December twenty-second, 1977, where Taylor, then aged 21, came up behind a young woman walking to work at 7.15pm near to Nuncroft Mount, put his hand over her mouth, and dragged the terrified 19-year-old victim off the street. A knife was held to her throat, and she was told to shut up as she tried to scream. Taylor, who smelt of alcohol, forced her to go behind some bushes, then ordered her to strip and lie on the floor. He bound her hands together, and told her to do as she was told, or he would kill her. She was blindfolded, and something was placed in her mouth before he raped her. Afterwards. Taylor put the knife to her throat and told her to stay where she was for 20 minutes Prosecutor Stephen Ward said He said he would kill her and knew where she lived and if she moved he would follow her She was fearful of going home and made her way to the nearest phone box Forensic evidence was taken at the time and was finally linked to Taylor in 2016 after the police cold case review The prosecutor said that the chances of DNA belonging to someone else other than Taylor was a billion to one. In a victim statement read to the court, the woman said, I was 19 years old, full of life, full of fun and happy. Although I didn't know it, my life as I knew it was about to change forever. For nearly 41 years I have loathed my attacker, a feckless man who did this to me and nearly destroyed who I was. For nearly 41 years, I have loathed Christmas and had to pretend to be happy. For 41 years, I've cried. When evil touches you, there is no way back to who you were. Believe me, I have tried so many times. It did that day, and I'm not the person I was. The woman described how she went on to suffer from depression, anorexia, and mental illness in the years after the attack, saying, It is like a cancer, it is aggressive, it eats away at you. Your mind, your body and your soul, your very being, that is what rape is. He has not taken any responsibility for his evil actions, other than to utter the simple word, guilty. He hasn't a backbone, he hasn't learned any lessons. He has offered no mitigating circumstance or shown remorse. The second attack took place in Bramley Fall Woods, a beauty spot close to the River Eyre and the Leeds-Liverpool Canal, on September 23rd, 1982, where then 26-year-old Taylor approached a married 27-year-old woman who was walking with her son and daughters, who were all aged under 8 at the time, and asked her if she'd seen the lockkeeper. She began to feel uneasy and shouted to her children to hurry up, but Taylor produced and held a kitchen knife to her throat and demanded that she perform a sex act upon him. Taylor fled after her daughters, who feared they were about to see their mother murdered, screamed. The woman reported the incident to police at the time, and helped compile an e-fit at Milgarth Police Station, and though a public appeal was launched, her attacker was never identified. The court heard the woman showed astonishing resilience and calm, Mr Wood said. She looked into his eyes and told him she had three children and was pregnant and asked the defendant what effect this would have on her children. The eldest child thought the man would cut her mother's throat and would kill her and was understandably petrified. The victim contacted police in 2003 after recognising Taylor's picture on TV when she was watching a programme about the murder of Leanne Ternan. Mr Wood said, She immediately recognised him as being her attacker in 1982. At the same time, her daughter was watching the same programme and she recognised him and rang her mother immediately. No further progress though was made until the woman was contacted by police in 2016 when mother and daughter both picked out Taylor at an identification parade. In her victim statement, the woman said, The fact that I can remember so many details from that day really shows the impact it had on me. The worst thing is that it took place in front of my three young children. The fact that it took place in front of my three young children makes it more callous. I always felt, having looked into his eyes, that he would go on to commit more crimes. Now these are just two. There were countless other attacks described including one against a seven-year-old girl in 1982 when she was grabbed by Taylor, carried to a churchyard and tied to a drainpipe before she was repeatedly sexually assaulted. Days later, he stood looking at her bedroom window, smiling and pulling scary faces at her when she looked out to petrify her into silence. Words fail, don't they? I, I don't know what to say to that. Mr Wood told the judge All these offences demonstrate the defendant's long-standing and sadistic proclivities towards vulnerable women and female children. He became ever more emboldened over time before finally committing the murder of Leanne Ternan. Presiding Judge Robin Myers said, beginning with the rape of the seven-year-old, I am satisfied you gained some sexual gratification from that despicable callousness. The trauma, fear and nightmares that would have engendered in that child are beyond comprehension. There's a chilling echo to be found in what happened to that girl and what happened to Leanne Tiernan. Judge Mayers said that the offences Taylor committed were of exceptional gravity, continuing. I have read with care each and every victim personal statement, and they make harrowing reading. Even that harrowing reading could not describe the suffering that you inflicted on these women. They needed courage and needed resilience because of the lifelong effects of your actions. You carried out a 20 year campaign of rape and assaults, vile sadistic attacks on women and small children marked by ferocity and callousness, fuelled by sadistic desire to inflict pain for sexual gratification your threats to kill in the attacks are shown by the offense against Leanne Tiernan that they are not hollow ones Taylor showed no emotion as Judge Mayers said he had no choice but to impose a life sentence with a whole life tariff telling the then 62 year old it was necessary to impose the rare sentence because of the severity of his crimes he said I am in no doubt that you must be kept in prison for the rest of your life. In your case, John Taylor, life imprisonment means exactly that. Taylor's decades of offending had been pieced together following a cold case review called Operation Keyside, which involved West Yorkshire Police, the National Crime Agency and Forensic Services. Speaking outside court, the senior investigating officer Detective Superintendent Jim Dunkerley added, Today's sentencing is the culmination of a long and detailed investigation into Taylor and his offending, and I want to pay tribute to my team for their work in bringing Taylor to justice. Hopefully, today's sentences bring a degree of comfort to his victims who have been through a horrific ordeal. Thankfully, Taylor didn't subject them to a trial, so they didn't have to give evidence. I do though want to pay tribute to them for bravely coming forward and telling police what happened to them. John Taylor, as we have seen today, would be described as a monster. He has committed horrendous acts. There are other murders he could have been involved with, but the last thing you want is to be fixated on one subject. I will continue to review all the undetected cases that we have, and John Taylor may feature in there, but I have to say that I have to look at it objectively and look at other offenders who may be within that caseload. There was also the disconcerting fact that Taylor had worked for Parcel Force and had travelled extensively around the country and that he was known to travel extensively to meet women from Lonely Hearts columns. Now during several of the rapes that he'd committed in in the 1980s and 1990s, he had told a number of the victims that he travelled all over the country doing this. So was this true? Could there be other victims nationwide? And today, the pain for the Tiernan family goes on still. Leanne would today perhaps have a career, a family and home of her own. She perhaps even would have been a mother herself. She certainly missed out on being an aunt, as her sister Michelle, some years after Leanne's death, gave birth to a daughter named Evie Lee. The family has spoken frankly and openly several times in the years since Leanne's murder, and in each account the pain is still very visible to them. In one documentary, a link to which is in the episode show notes along with several others, Sharon Hawkhead had told how she kept an old mobile that belonged to Leanne, although not the one she had with her the night she was abducted, for that one has never been found. She even still played it to be able to hear the voicemail recorded by her late daughter, saying, I won't stop using it till it breaks. At the time, and most likely still today, both Sharon and Michael's homes remained alive with photographs of Leanne and her family in happier times, and Sharon kept almost everything of Leanne's, her possessions including many soft toys, the small bedroom tidy and neat as she would have left it, even down to a set of bedding she'd bought her just prior to her 16th birthday. Sharon admitted that there were times that she even considered ending things to be with Leanne, such was the pain, but told how she got through the horror without going insane by going back to work in the offices of a finance company, and as I said, by attending a spiritualist church. It helped Sharon... For for a long time, she was terrified of letting her remaining daughter out of her sight. Michelle's employers at a catalog company were prevailed upon to let her do shifts, which meant minimal travel in the dark, and which they understandably agreed to. But often, Sharon would meet her daughter at the bus stop anyway. Bubble wrapping her is a word the family used, and which you can completely understand as well, can't you? Back then, years after her daughter's murder. Sharon said she tried not to think about what happened to Leanne but admitted I quote but it's only about five seconds before I think about her when I wake up each day we all became used to the sight of Leanne with her long blonde hair and her smart school uniform beaming at us from newspapers during the months of investigation but I have a photo of her that no one else has seen beside my clock by the bed I went from being a mother of two to a mother of one It's like somebody's pulled your arm off. It's a nightmare you never wake up from. As for Taylor, Sharon admitted that at one stage, she couldn't even bring herself to write the words John Taylor down. An instance occurring when she'd returned to work, when a customer bearing the same name had come in, and a colleague of hers had had to deal with him. But by years later, she said, Well, I believe he did other crimes but I don't really think about him, he's nothing, he's less than nothing. He is indeed less than nothing, a monster who deserves to end his days behind bars. I've had this tale knocking around for a couple of years now, half written, and when I say episodes sometimes find their own time to wear, this felt time for Leanne's story. It's a heartbreaking, dreadful crime. Brought home to me so much by the amount of information there is available about it, and the candidness of Leanne's family throughout. My heart goes out to them no less than any of the others I've ever featured on The Enthusiast over the years, and the other known victims of Taylor's also. No other word than monster will suffice, for this is one of the most evil bastards I have ever come across. And a monster responsible for so much more. As police said as far back as 2002, Taylor was then being looked at as a serious suspect in several other unsolved murders in the Leeds and Bradford areas. He's consistently linked with four or five unsolved murders from here in the 1980s and 1990s, as well as the deaths of six sex workers up in Glasgow over a similar time period, where he was known to frequent and visit a brothel there. And if he isn't responsible for at least a couple of those he's consistently linked with, then I would be amazed. I really would, because this is a guy who for certain has done other terrible things. Now, I won't go into detail concerning these cases, but we shall get around to them because they're tales for another time in a future episode. To date, however, Taylor has never faced charges concerning any of these cases and has never admitted involvement in any other crimes, which he never will do, until the overwhelming evidence proving his culpability slaps him in the face and he cannot avoid it. He most likely will take the other secrets he holds to his grave with him, leaving countless other families of dead girls wondering, what if? Now, Taylor has never admitted the full story of what happened that night with Leanne, still claiming that he just snapped and grabbed Leanne in an opportunistic strike and did this. But myself, I believe it likely that as she walked alone along the unlit path, Taylor lunged out of the darkness and grabbed her from behind. I was struck visiting the scene just how many places there are for a person to hide in the darkness there. She managed to scream just once, before he put his hand over her mouth, then blindfolded her with his scarf and wrapped her in the parcel force overcoat he habitually wore, pulling the hood tight over her head. Now several accounts claim that it was once back at his house that Taylor secured Leanne's hands behind her back in the way described, with the cable tight cuffs. But I'm of the opinion that she would already have been restrained like this, and not with a dog lead, for a number of reasons. I believe someone that into restraints, specifically cable ties such as Taylor, would have immensely enjoyed having such an item already made up on his person anyway. It would have been easier to control a victim in an already high-risk locale, and it would have negated any possible struggle once he got his victim home. Plus, if he used his dog lead, what's he going to put his dog on? Now next and as I said before almost unbelievably I could never get my head around this until I walked it myself. He marched Leal on the walk to his home a journey that was estimated he said to have taken at least 22 minutes. Now during research for the episode as I've said I visited Bramley and I walked this most likely route myself. Considering the speed that could be walked whilst controlling a victim and a dog without drawing undue attention to yourself adding a minute or two on for restraining leanne and getting her prepared to be marched and bearing in mind he would want to go the quickest most direct way the most direct and logical route from huffley gill to taylor's house in cockshot drive is up huffley lane to wither park terrace then down wither park street onto wither park mount and then across cockshot lane to cockshot drive it took me just 12 minutes to do on a route that i've never walked before and whilst having google maps open to see where i was going and what i was struck with immediately as i said is the high risk location of the abduction site and the walk back huffley gill although dark is surrounded by premises and once out of there the route back to cockshot drive i've just described is completely along urban estates it even crosses a busy main road although most of the houses on this route to be fair have high privet or laurel hedges screening them from the road so add to that the darkness of that time in november and i'm unsurprised that nobody glanced through the window and saw something not quite right yet equally it's such a close-knit estate that you would imagine a car or two must have passed yet not realized what they'd seen It must have taken a truly cold, determined, and confident killer to have done this. It really must. I have to admit that I also found it an upsetting one to have done. Whenever before on the show I've been to the locations where some of these dreadful crimes have happened, I'm always finding myself imagining what it must have been like for Sophie Hook or Catherine Gowing or Irma Tatty Rogers. So to retrace and imagine what must have been Leanne's final walk, Absolutely petrified out of her wits. Well, it's something that will stay with me, but it was something I was always going to do to tell her story. Now, what else happened in that house following all this cannot be ascertained, but Taylor's claim that Leanne fell off the bed and struck her head, leaving blood everywhere, is the first absolute shamble of bollocks of this series. If blood was found there, and reportedly, traces of Leanne's blood were found on Taylor's bedroom floorboards, then it was from an assault by him. As horrific as it is, and not something I want to imagine really, once here I believe Leanne was violently sexually assaulted, and was then strangled, not just with a woollen scarf, but with an industrial cable tie also, one that was pulled so tight around her throat. It had tightened to a diameter of just 10 centimetres when it had to be cut off her. Grab a ruler and visualise that for yourself. What an absolutely monstrous act. An absolutely horrific and terrifying way for someone to die. The poor, poor girl. To then keep her frozen for almost nine months is horror beyond belief as well. And it most likely is only due to the freezer breaking down the freestanding chest freezer customers remembered dominated his kitchen, wasn't found during the search of the property, that he's moved to Lindley Woods, which when I visited there, it's an eerie foreboding place, it really is, and that's not me being biased because I know what was found there, the videos I took at the scene demonstrate this well enough I think. Visibility really is almost non-existent from the road there, And I could quite well believe that there were places not far into it that you could leave a body well screened and it could be weeks or months before it was found. So the cable ties, the confidence he had in getting his victim back home, the location of Leanne's body, of course this is someone who's done similar things before, despite his carelessness in leaving evidence that brought police to his door, the abduction and murder was simply too polished. To be a first time. Too polished. We now know that Taylor was sexually offending as far back as 1977, but I believe offending like that soon escalates further, and the next natural step up is murder. What he admitted to in 2018 is surely the tip of the iceberg, for based on his described offences and his personality, I don't believe he waited 24 years to make that step up not at all i don't think he could wait what do you think put taylor from your minds as much as you can going forth from this though let that bastard rot and think instead of a happy well-loved girl with a bright future ahead of her simply walking home from a happy afternoon out with her best friend who had the misfortune to be in the wrong place at the wrong time I would hope you would keep Leanne in your thoughts first and foremost. I would love as ever hearing your thoughts and feedback concerning Leanne's story as you've heard in the episodes Poacher, Petman, Predator, which you can do as always in the episode thread that's up in the show's Facebook discussion group or through any of the show's social media links. You know me, I'm happy to hear from you wherever. There are several videos that I've shared in the show's Facebook discussion group also for my trip to Bramley, so make sure that if you're a member there that you check them out, and if you aren't a member yet, then come on in because there's lots going on there. With that, I shall wrap up here and move on to the next tale for the series. I thank you all once again for joining me in the black and white dark night today, and all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul the true crime enthusiast wishing you all good and safe times and i shall speak to you very soon take care all stay safe and goodbye for now